1: Hi there, Art Curious listener. Jennifer here, and we are on a little bit of a break between seasons. We just finished up season 8 in January, and we will be airing new episodes of Art Curious with season 9 beginning later this spring. So until then, we are going to be airing the Curious Callback episodes, as we call them, so you can listen in to some older works from our archives. I hope you enjoy them, and as always, stay curious and stay subscribed. We'll be back to you very soon. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about all of Anchorlight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. In 2015, one of the coolest films of the 1980s was being lauded for its 30th anniversary of its release in 1985. That movie was Back to the Future. The Robert Zemeckis directed Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd starring film that brought time travel and The DeLorean to the masses, all to like a totally bitchin' Huey Lewis in the new soundtrack. But in connection with this anniversary and its link to Back to the Future Day, where Marty McFly would arrive at the present time, at the point it was October 21st, 2015, the New York Times did something a bit weird and actually kind of gross. On its Twitter feed, they shared the results of a poll to its masses of hundreds of thousands of followers. The poll asked one simple question, and I quote, If you could go back in time and kill Hitler as a baby, would you do it? And for the record, the majority at 42% said yes, 30% answered no, and a final 28% said they weren't sure. Now, admittedly, this is not a new question because variations on the morality problem like this have been floating around for decades, and they seem to be a popular one with late-night partiers. But it was a funky thing to ask when contemplating the cheery, good-humored film to which it was loosely connected. And as Twitter is wont to do, Twitter went nuts for this. First came the jokey responses. I'm interested, but do you have any non-baby-killing packages? Or, if this means dress up like a giant baby and kill an adult Hitler, then yes, for private reasons. And then came the think pieces. First, from the science community, who declared the impossibility of the physics and metaphysics associated with time travel. They, of course, evoked the grandfather paradox that would be in play here, that oft-told theory that if you go back in time and kill your grandfather before he has children, then you wouldn't be born and couldn't have gone back in time and killed your grandfather. An article in Forbes then noted, quote, The same paradox occurs when killing Hitler. If you eliminate the baby Fuhrer and prevent the rise of the Nazis, then you create a world in which World War II didn't occur and thus you have no reason to go back in time. Thus, Hitler survives to adulthood and we're all back where we started, unquote. And then came the other think pieces, the morality think pieces. So why it would be unethical to go back in time and kill baby Hitler when you probably should be attempting to change his environment, for example. Suddenly, a rather silly question became a much bigger one. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. Hitler still lived to adulthood, and nothing will change that. But if the New York Times Magazine poll proves anything, it's that nearly half of its readers want that kind of retroactive vigilante justice, or a revolutionary to come in and wipe out a terrible dictator. Well, what if I told you that one of the 20th century's most fascinating painters was once thought to have attempted doing just that, during his and Hitler's own lifetime? Naturally, we know it didn't actually work out this way, but it shows just how powerful and scary some politicians think art can be. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless, But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In Season 6, we are uncovering the dastardly deeds of several of art history's famed artists, including their involvement, or participation, in Murder Most Foul. Today's topic, did famed German Expressionist painter Otto Dix plot to kill Hitler? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Heinrich Otto Dix was born on December 2, 1891, in Untermaus, Germany, which is now part of the city of Gera in the central German state of Thuringia. His father, Franz, was a mold maker who worked at an iron foundry, and his mother, Louise, worked as a seamstress, although she also wrote poetry. As such, both his parents exposed young Otto to the arts at a very early age. And if you've listened to the Art Curious podcast in the past, then this next part will sound very familiar to you. So Otto Dix began first exploring and examining an inclination towards the arts while a young boy in elementary school. And under the keen eye and support of his teachers, he then took up drawing. At age 10, he began spending time with his cousin, a painter named Fritz Amann, and he began watching him work and occasionally modeling for his cousin's compositions. And he was just knocked out by all of it. Impressed with the older artist's work and studio, he determined that he himself would also become a painter. by 1909, at age 18, he enrolled in the Dresden Academy of Arts and Craft. But at the time, the academy wasn't a formal art school, but instead more of a craft-oriented education, aiming more at the applied arts, or decoration and design, for more practical or utilitarian items rather than the quote-unquote fine stuff that we are used to seeing in museums today. I know, I think the delineation between arts and crafts is pretty uncool and the line between the two is pretty blurry today. And I am thankful for that. But all of this to say that Dix wasn't really getting what he wanted at the Dresden Academy. He wanted to paint. Really, really paint. And so, he had to teach himself how to do it. Otto Dix taught himself how to paint by studying old masterworks from the Dutch, Italian, and German traditions. Taking in everything from the Italian Renaissance to Dutch and Flemish Baroque art and beyond their methods and techniques of paint layering color theory and perspective he also valued the work of post-impressionists particularly vincent van gogh after he saw an exhibition of van gogh's works in 1913. young otto was drawn to van gogh's luminous colorful brushstrokes. but the work that had the longest lasting effects on dix's own works of art was done by the German expressionists of the Die Brücke group, based in Dresden since 1905. Die Brücke, or the Bridge, originally consisted of famed painters like Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, Karl Schmidt-Rottluff, Emil Nolde, and Max Pechstein, among many others. Like their French semi counterparts, the Fauves, they loved the use of arbitrary and unnatural colors to heighten the emotion of a scene as well as the influence of non-Western arts, then identified with the now pejorative term, primitivism. But unlike the Phobes, De Bruca's images could be stark and disturbing, even violent, focusing less on the natural world and more on the corruption and alienation of the urban environment at the dawn of the 20th century. This was huge to Otto. And this dark and unvarnished look at life would become a hallmark for him as his career progressed and one that seemed almost inevitable after the dawn of World War I. When World War I erupted in 1914, Dix, like many others, eagerly volunteered for service and was drafted into a field artillery regiment, eventually becoming a machine gunner on the front lines of battles in France. And what he saw there was horrendous fighting so brutal, so gruesome, that he could no longer comprehend the reasons for it. He was wounded in the line of duty several times, too, which did nothing to further encourage his early enthusiasm for the war effort. The only consolation he had was his art, which he kept up while away at war. In total, he would create approximately 600 drawings and gouaches, a type of opaque watercolor, that portrayed the brutality of the experiences in war. In this way, He was actually very similar to a lot of the combat artists of World War II, which we discussed in episode 23 during our second season. After the war, Otto Dix was determined more than ever to return to Dresden to complete his artistic education, and as the decades progressed, he remained ever devoted to experimentation and adoption of new styles of work. Many of his paintings from the 1920s, for example, synthesize his interest in knowledge in multiple modes at once—cubism, futurism surrealism, and more, all anchored with the layered paint technique that he gleaned from his beloved old masters. But his interest in depicting the realities of the world as he knew it remained at the forefront, bolstered by his wartime experiences. This determination placed him in good company with the other artists who thought and worked similarly, and often with a political bent in mind. Together, this group would rally under the name of a new movement called Neusaklikheit, which roughly translates to the new objectivity. No more of the obsession of that expressionistic form and color. Now, it was all about a lack of sentimentality and a new devotion to realism, even if Neusoklachite works aren't realist in the same way that a Courbet painting is, for example. In fact, it's kind of hard to pinpoint a real through-line between the works of various Neusoklachite artists, which included not only Otto Dix, but also Max Beckman and George Gross, among many others there's no single identifiable style, a formal connection between these artists. Instead, it was their intention to objectively represent the truth of their times that links them. The so-called Weimar Republic, the name given to the German state during the post-war period until 1933, was a messy time. Fueled by hyperinflation and food shortages and laws that were little policed, Sachlichkeit artists obsessed over the Weimar Republic's political and social turmoil, the corruption endemic to their bureaucracy, and the alienation that was endemic to their urban landscape. Not that it was all bad. The cities in which these artists dwelled were also pushing the boundaries of tradition and freedom, and some of Dix's most famous works came from this fruitful, strange period. Take, for example, one of his most famous works, a portrait of the journalist Sylvia von Harden from 1926. Legend has it that Dix chased von Harden down the street demanding she sit for a portrait, exclaiming, I must paint you. You are representative of an entire epoch. She relented, of course, and the resulting work is unforgettable. Von Harden sits in an imagined cafe table in a garishly pink room, holding a cigarette in one hand and practically clawing at her own red and black checkered dress with the other. She grimaces, baring her teeth, wearing a monocle—a strange affect, by the way—and she stares into the distance. She's pale and dons a nice dark lip color, but also sports a short, boyish hairdo. And her long nose and rolling nylons do nothing to enhance her appeal from a traditional standpoint. But maybe that was the whole reason to paint her. She's both man and woman, androgynous and fascinating, both enticing and strange. She's the Weimar Republic herself, free and uninhibited and straying from tradition, but also unnerving and unappealing. She's also an art historical icon, and Bob Fosse even planted a little tribute to her in his classic 1972 film Cabaret. It was exactly this painting and others from this time period that would ultimately get Otto Dix and a lot of his other fellow artists in a lot of trouble. That's coming up next, right after this quick break.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022,
1: I love the feeling I get when I learn something new, that aha moment that is just so satisfying and empowering. And with The Great Courses Plus, I can experience that feeling whenever I want, because challenging myself to broaden my horizons and trying something new just feels awesome. Recently, I did this by enjoying lectures on two subjects I know very little about, birding and Buddhism. And I loved both especially how easy it is to follow the instructors during their lectures and how engaging they all are, whether I'm watching or I'm just listening along to the lectures. And I want you to try The Great Courses Plus too, because there's so much knowledge to tap into, and I know you're going to love it. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video lectures on virtually anything that interests you. You can learn chess from an expert, explore the cosmos, or even get tips on how to train your dog. The possibilities are truly endless. And with The Great Courses Plus, the content is all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information that you can trust from some of the best professors and top experts in their field from all over the world. Plus, you can download The Great Courses Plus app and watch or listen on any device, anytime you want. What purpose waits for you? sign up for The Great Courses Plus and find out. Visit my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. You'll get a 14-day free trial with unlimited access, so don't pass this up. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. If you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you are wasting your time. Hire great people faster with Indeed. Only pay for results and get back time into your schedule. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their databases to help you search for great candidates instantly. So you can do the part you really need faster, the meeting and the hiring of great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, so you can deliver a quality shortlist faster. And with Indeed, there are no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a list of great candidates with zero wait. And Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free. $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash art. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash art. Indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Bloomberg Connects is the free smartphone app that lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere, which is a truly awesome way to connect to the art world you love right now from the comfort of your own home. The app takes a portfolio approach, offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. Bloomberg Connects offers users the chance to discover new cultural partners all around the world. And right now, guides are available for many institutions in New York and London, with other new arts and cultural spaces being added all the time. One of my favorite New York cultural touchstones is the Frick Collection, which has been closed for renovations before its soon temporary move to Madison Avenue, and they are reopening this month. So what better way to connect with my favorite Frick pieces and immerse myself in the galleries than from the comfort of my own home? Bloomberg Connects allows you to access digital guides, hear from artists, curators, and experts, and get the stories behind the exhibitions. Download Bloomberg Connects at the Apple app and Google Play stores or visit app.bloombergconnects.org/artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. At the beginning of the 20th century, a radical shift across the arts and life in general had begun to take place. Visually speaking, artists were less enthused about presenting the world realistically and naturalistically and moved, like Otto Dix did, towards more abstraction, expression, and towards psychological and intimate portraits. The painting of Sylvia von Harden is this perfect example. God knows she didn't actually walk down the street looking like that, with that scary monster hand and those bulbous knees. Otto Dix heightened her appearance to allow for us to have a more emotional experience. It was exciting, new, and dangerous. And it became more appealing and more popular to artists in the 1920s and 1930s as those artists began to be more exposed to such works of art. And as institutions throughout the world began showing and collecting more of these experimenters, like Max Beckman, Paul Klee, Max Ernst, and more. To some, these artists and these works were edgy. But to others, they were radical. And radical was not always good. In 1933, Adolf Hitler rose to power when he was appointed German Chancellor and he immediately declared war on what he called cultural degeneracy. Anything that was deemed too modern was effectively destroyed. Books and paintings were burned. Artists and musicians fired from their positions. Museums parted with some of their prize collections. Under Hitler's orders over the next few years, over 20,000 works of art were removed from state-owned museums throughout Germany essentially dismantling much of these collections and rehanging and curating around a more social-realist style of art, one that Hitler himself found much more favorable. It was propaganda and censorship at its aesthetic height, intended to reveal modern artists as, quote, "...incompetents, cheats, and madmen, chatterboxes, dilettantes, and art swindlers," unquote, according to Hitler himself. These artists and their works were degenerate. And the definition of degenerate art, according to Hitler himself, was, quote, "...works that insult German feeling, or destroy or confuse natural form, or simply reveal an absence of adequate manual and artistic skill." Unquote. And what would be the best way to prove their stated inferiority? By having an art exhibition that made this degeneracy perfectly clear, naturally. To be fair. The show that would eventually become known as the Degenerate Art Exhibition was an afterthought. Hitler had originally declared a wish to hold a show about great German art, the kind of art that Hitler and his cronies would actually enjoy and promote. But when the jury showed the results of the call to artists to Hitler, he hated it. It wasn't very good, to be honest. And so to partially save face as a member of the jury Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's Reich Minister for Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, suggested an exhibition of the bad stuff alongside the good stuff. And thus, the Great German Exhibition and the Degenerate Art Exhibition were produced concurrently, open to the public from July through November of 1937. This is one of those big moments in art history of the 20th century. A huge show that became a sensation. In the first six months after the exhibition opened in Munich, Over one million people crowded into the dark, dense galleries to view the nearly 700 works of art that were meant to, quote, educate the public on the art of decay and as cultural documents of the decadent work of the Bolsheviks and Jews, unquote. Insanely harsh criticism was lobbed onto the works from everyone from George Gross, Ernst Ludwig Kirchner, Franz Marc, Paul Klee, Kurt Schwitters, and, of course, Otto Dix. And some non-German artists were also brought into the fold as arbiters of degeneracy, such as Pablo Picasso, Piet Mondrian, and Marc Chagall. It was a convenient way to link any modern artist to the arbitrary enemy list. If you were Jewish, you were out. If you were French, you were out. Gay? A woman? Disabled? Gone, gone, gone. Those artists were seen as genetically inferior and mentally incompetent, and all of society's supposed ills could be placed directly on their shoulders. And Otto Dix, who had eight of his artworks confiscated and then presented in the Degenerate Art Exhibition, he was a big culprit. Admittedly, the 1930s hadn't been going very well for Otto Dix, especially once Hitler came into power in 1933. Under Hitler's orders to remove anyone considered culturally degenerate from positions of power or influence, Dix lost his job as a professor at the Dresden Academy of Fine Arts, where he had been working since 1927, and though he tried to keep under the radar, his socially conscious and critical subject matter, along with the oh-so-treacherous modernist style, really ruffled fascist feathers. The Nazis forbade him from exhibiting his work in Germany, and they ultimately confiscated approximately 260 of his works, calling them, quote, immoral, unquote. Hitler, of course, hated his works, as he did the other members of Neue Sachlichkeit, And he targeted Otto Dix as one of the baddies to keep an eye upon. So, Dix became part of the infamous Degenerate Art Exhibition, and legend has it that when Hitler himself first gazed upon one of Otto's works at the Degenerate show, he said, quote, It is a pity one cannot lock up people like that, unquote. Now, that was bad enough. But two years later, Otto Dix got fingered for something even worse. An assassination attempt on Hitler himself. There's a lot more to this story coming up next. Bombus makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They've literally rethought every little detail of the socks we wear to make them way more comfortable. I am basically wearing my Bombus every day and so does my husband and my son. And it's safe to say we are a Bombus family just zipping around in our socks all day while we work and school from home. And not only do they keep us warm and comfortable, but they also look cool too. But these socks do more than keep feet stylish and cozy. They help give back to the most vulnerable members of our community. Because for every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of 3,000 plus giving partners and the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes, a small comfort that's especially important right now. Give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombus.com slash artcurious. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot slash artcurious for 20% off your first purchase. Bombus.com slash artcurious. Average interest rates on credit card debt are over 17% APR. Have you looked at your interest rate lately? Pay off your credit cards and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Rates start at just 5.95% APR with autopay and excellent credit, which is much lower than the national average interest rate on credit cards. Plus, the rate is fixed so it will never go up over the life of the loan. Get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 with absolutely no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash artcurious. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash artcurious. Subject to credit approval. Rates range from 5.95% APR to 19.99% APR and include a 0.50% auto pay discount. Lowest rates require excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash artcurious for more information. Welcome back to Art Curious. On November 8, 1939, Hitler was visiting a Munich beer hall, a location he attended every year to give a rousing political speech about Germany's progress in the early days of World War II and about the incompetence of the country's enemies. Thirteen minutes into the speech, something huge happened. A bomb exploded in the beer hall, causing a huge amount of damage, innumerable injuries, and eight deaths. The beer hall ceiling completely collapsed right at the spot where Hitler had been standing. But he was no longer there because, according to reports, Hitler had opted to cut his speech shorter than usual and was eager to head back to Berlin and carry on his wartime missions and planning. So Hitler survived. And in the process, a huge manhunt was underway to find the culprit of the bombing. And one of the people immediately suspected of the crime was Otto Dix. Dix, as the Nazis assured themselves, was lethal, unstable. And given the fact that they had robbed him of his livelihood, obviously pissed about his life under Nazi rule. So it was assumed that he had a very, very good reason to want to kill Hitler. And so Otto Dix was arrested almost immediately, questioned, and placed in jail. It seemed like Otto Dix was done for. That his life was effectually over following the attempt on Hitler's life. But two weeks later, he was released after the real perpetrator of the explosion had been captured at the Swiss border, alongside ample proof of his involvement. The real would-be assassin was a 36-year-old carpenter named Georg Elser, an incredible character in his own right. And his planning for this attempt was almost a year in the making, according to the interrogation transcripts that surfaced in the 1960s. After experimenting with various explosives in his hometown of Swabia in southern Germany while working at an armaments firm, which provides a good cover story, Georg Elser began working at the beer hall where Hitler made his annual pilgrimage. And this is fascinating. As the beer hall prepared to close for the night, Elser would hide himself away, and after the last workers and patrons had left for the evening, he would sneak out and work all night to carve out the right space for the bomb's placement under the hall stage. And so it went, for a year, until all of his preparations missed Hitler by a mere 13 minutes. In the transcripts of the Nazi interrogations of Georg Elser, Elser admitted, and the Nazis confirmed, that he had acted alone. He wasn't part of a bigger group of assassins, and he had no accomplices, though for a while Otto Dix was assumed to be connected to him. But why? Really? It appears it was nothing more than a case of rounding up the usual suspects, of blaming an individual or the type of person that you think would be guilty of such a crime. Hitler despised Otto Dix, and his knowing quote from the Degenerate Art Show about wanting to lock up someone like Dix makes it all too clear that this was a simple act of hatred and prejudice. The Nazis had the chance to arrest Dix not because he planned the assassination attempt, but because they could and it was a great opportunity to get rid of an assumed enemy, one whose fascinating paintings and drawings were viewed as pointed modernist threats to the Fuhrer's goals. Dix had no plans to kill Hitler and wasn't involved whatsoever in Ilser's failed attempt, but the chance to hold him under lock and key, even if just for two weeks instead of in perpetuity, was probably viewed as a good scare tactic at the very least, but it didn't work. Throughout the war, even after his arrest, Otto Dix did something amazing. He opted to stay in Germany. And he kept painting. Sure, he may have toned things down a bit, so he didn't outright provoke Hitler's continued ire. But he didn't leave Germany, either. Didn't become part of that huge, exiled brain-trust of creatives and intellectuals who escaped fascism for Great Britain or the United States and beyond. And even at the height of World War II, when it looked like things were really dire, he didn't budge. He was conscripted into joining the Nazis' Volkssturm, or the People's Militia, and he ended up being captured by the French and became a prisoner of war. But even during this time, he continued to find ways to paint and sketch. After his release in 1946, he did something incredible. He returned to Germany— his messy, war-torn home, and he painted again. How ballsy. How unflinching. How modern. How very Otto Dix. Thank you for listening to this Curious Callback episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Grace Harlow. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kaboonki.com. An additional editing is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the Triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast and we rely on sponsors and donations to keep us going. So if you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider giving $10 to help the show and thank you for your kindness. You can still help our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more details about our show, including the images mentioned in this episode, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at artcuriouspod. Please note that we will be shutting down our Facebook page very soon. Check back as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the true crime realm of art history.